Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic novelist and Zen Buddhist priest Ruth Ezeki on objects and observation. And this week I am delighted to say that for a special episode I will be sharing an extract from my book The Story of Art Without Men which is available to purchase on Audible. But just before we get to this I am delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art You can use Ocular's gallery platform to follow artists, view artworks and be notified of upcoming exhibitions at the world's leading galleries. In addition, Ocular magazine publishes articles covering art world news, exhibitions and interviews, whilst Ocular Advisory publishes articles on emerging and established artists grabbing art market attention. To stay ahead of the contemporary art world, visit ocular.com and follow at ocular.art on Instagram. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. Worlds beyond our realm. Surrealism. Of course the women were important, but it was because they were our muses. They weren't artists. So claimed Roland Penrose, husband of Lee Miller, to legendary feminist Whitney Chadwick during her visit to his home in the 1980s. When Chadwick later asked artist Leonora Carrington for her thoughts on the surrealist muse, she replied... I thought it was bullshit. I didn't have time to be anyone's muse. I was too busy rebelling against my family and learning to be an artist. Building on the anti-establishment notions of Dada, in the wake of the political crises and traumas of the First World War, the Spanish Civil War and the fear of encroaching fascism across Europe, the artists, writers and thinkers of the Surrealist movement rejected ideas of conventionality and were drawn to the subconscious. They placed emphasis on the power of dreams and the dislocated imagery found in their fantasies or nightmares, engaging with the brutality of the body, in part influenced by the return of missing-limbed veterans from the front lines. Using new methods of working, from automatism, creating without conscious thought, which derived from spiritualism, to collage and photomontage, the surrealists combined pictures of the real world with those in the depths of our minds. Founded by poet André Breton in Paris in 1924, surrealism was initially appealing to women due to its projected ethos of equality and radical and progressive thought. However, this was not entirely borne out in practice, and many women eventually rejected Breton due to his profound misogyny. For him, as he wrote in his 1929 manifesto, the problem of women was the most marvellous and disturbing problem in all the world. 
Given his views of women as muses, wonders, enigmas, objects, and femme enfant, the child woman, who was young, beautiful, and obedient, it is not surprising that the female surrealists had to carve out their own independent path, both through their art and the ways in which they dressed. For male artists, surrealist ideas were built around the sexuality of the female image, with the likes of Max Ernst and Salvador Dali filling their canvases with violent and brutal images of fragmented or idealised bodies. However, as Carrington's punchy bullshit statement informs us, being seen as a muse was not something these strong-willed women intended to settle for, despite the gatekeepers of our history so often writing it that way. Women's role in surrealism is a powerful, inventive and fascinating one. They switched up the eroticised portrayal of their own bodies by turning their gaze back onto themselves. They looked to represent liberation and oppression, imagination and transformation, as well as magical and sensual qualities in their work. In their depictions of dreamscapes, landscapes, and frequently claustrophobic architectural interiors, they showed women as strong, dominating, and free. Unlike their male counterparts, who largely wore three-piece tweed suits, female surrealists used dress as a means of expression, as if to become walking embodiments of surrealist ideas, featuring themselves as animals, sphinxes, and other mythological creatures. Leonor Fini would even dress up in lion-like headscarves. Centred mostly in Paris during the avant-garde, by 1930, the movement had attracted artists internationally, from runaway English debutantes, Carrington, to small-town American photographers, Miller. But although we hear so often about the male contribution to the movement, it was the women working across collage, painting, photography, photomontage and sculpture who also advanced surrealist thinking and pushed forward techniques in the most radical of ways. One of the leading surrealist figures working in photography and photomontage was Dora Maar. Born Henrietta Theodora Markovich to a bourgeois family, Maar was raised between Buenos Aires and Paris. Here she turned to photography after studying the decorative arts and painting and captured the spirit of the movement through her Gothic-inspired images. Working on both commissions and on a commercial basis, Ma was one of the first women photographers to co-run a studio in Paris, and thrived in both her artistic and advertisement work. With the 1920s and 30s marking an exciting moment for commercial photography, Thanks to the boom of advertising, magazine editors and contemporary brands favoured commissioning inventive photographs over hand-drawn illustrations. And it was Ma's distinctive eye and knowledge of surrealist techniques that earned her work from myriad of health and beauty products designed to promote the new woman. These included Women's Hair with Soap, 1934, a shampoo promotion which depicts a highly imaginative and uncanny still of a woman washing her sculptural-like hair, and The Years Lie in Wait for You, circa 1935, a photo montage of her friend, the poet Nush Elward, with a spider's web superimposed over her face, created as marketing for an anti-aging cream. However, despite Ma's eagerness to project the idea of a modern woman, and many of the other women surrealists' intentions to do this, France between the two world wars was a contradictory environment for women's rights, 
with the state demanding women return to the home. And it wasn't until 1944 that they were finally granted the right to vote. But like so many of her surrealist contemporaries, she remained unmoved by the establishment. Motivated by her strong leftist beliefs, she ventured to the outskirts of Paris, London and Barcelona with a handheld camera, very rare for a woman at that time, and captured subjects ranging from pearly queens to butchers and blind street peddlers in images now considered some of the earliest examples of street photography. Ma always saw the extraordinary in the mundane, even though she often infused it with a slightly strange, slightly gothic, uncanny atmosphere. Ma's friend and contemporary Lee Miller also worked on a range of subjects with varied photographic styles. Whether commercial, fashion or war photography, Miller always caught an image with an otherworldly atmosphere and contributed to inventing techniques such as solarization exposing undeveloped images to the light to create a mystical silvery effect that would not only push forward the movement of surrealism, but develop the practice of photography itself. Born Elizabeth Miller in Poughkeepsie, New York, the young, fearless and highly intelligent Miller grew up being treated as an equal to her two brothers, with whom she was known to be fiercely competitive. However, when her mother became unwell, and left her in the care of family friends at the age of seven, she was raped and contracted gonorrhea. She was told never to speak of the incident again. Miller moved to New York in her teens, where she became a successful model, gracing the cover of Vogue after allegedly meeting Condé Nast himself at a road crossing. Ambitious and determined, Miller soon abandoned modelling to go behind the camera, travelling to Europe where she assisted and collaborated with Man Ray. She was adept at finding surrealist shapes within the body and rejected the male objectification of women entirely. Having been the muse and object for much of Man Ray's work, in 1933, the year after she'd left for New York, he remade his work object to be destroyed, 1923, by attaching an image of her eye to a metronome. It was through photography that Miller documented the suffocating reality of what it was like to be a woman in the 1930s, as seen in the image of her friend Tanya Ram's head, suspended in a bell jar, silent and trophy-like. A successful commercial photographer, Miller returned to New York in 1932, at the height of the Great Depression and opened up a photographic studio under the androgynous name of Lee. Life then took her to Egypt, where, with her surrealist lens, she photographed expansive empty desert scenes glimpsed through a ripped mesh sheath, as seen in Portrait of Space, 1937. But it was in England that she settled, on the outbreak of global conflict, becoming a war correspondent for Vogue. Her photographs are records of women's contributions to the war effort, but also of the grief-stricken mothers affected by loss. Reporting from Dachau and Buchenwald concentration camps, Miller famously captured the horrors experienced by so many. This is continued on the chapter on photojournalism. Influenced by the Dada artists, the Surrealists favoured working with found objects which they transformed from the ordinary to the extraordinary. 
using simple materials, or even just placing two found objects together in an act of assemblage, similar to the way that photographers and collagists would merge multiple images, or painters did with multiple subjects. Those working with objects believed in the power of reshaping the mundane in unexpected and exciting ways. Designed to trigger the senses, the fur-lined teacup created by Mary Oppenheim is one of the most absurd, jarring and quintessential objects of the Surrealist movement. Titled Object, 1936, when exhibited at the Surrealist Exhibition in New York in the same year, it caused an uproar among viewers. It continues to divide opinion even today. One of the foremost British artists working in a Surrealist style, Eileen Agar was hailed for her vibrant sculptures made up of objects found in or beside the sea. She was interested in the magic created when two individual objects are placed beside each other and they juxtapose histories. Playing with the familiarity of objects, she fused them as one, as if piecing together a collage. Born in Buenos Aires, Agar moved to the UK at the age of six. She grew up in an extravagant, yet conservative household with a mother, known to be a lover of great hats, whose only wish was for her daughter to marry respectably. With altogether different thoughts in mind, Agar ran away to the Slade School of Art in the early 1920s, destroyed all her work prior to 1926, and soon after, fled to Paris, where she thrived. Here, she mixed with the Cubists, who taught her about form, and the Surrealists, who introduced her to the idea of tapping into her subconscious mind. Returning to London in 1930, she painted three symbols, previously titled The Flying Pillar, combining subjects ranging from, in her words, Greek culture to industrial modernity to reflect the rapidly developing world around her and to evoke the idea of being a woman between the patriarchal pillars. Agar used assemblage to devise new purpose and personalities within an object and challenge gender conventions. Upon seeing a plain marble bust of her partner, Joseph Bard, Agar declared it caught nothing whatsoever of his character and became determined to create a piece that did. The glittering and, when witness in the flesh, stocky and heavy Angel of Anarchy from 1936-40 to 40 is festooned with fabric, silk, seashells, feathers and diamante stones, evoking both Bard's character and his significance in Agar's life as a lover and muse. In acknowledgement of the great political and social upheaval taking place in Britain, Agar, who like Bard was an anti-fascist and pacifist, blindfolded the head in silk fabric as if to symbolise her apprehensions about the future. Surrealism continued to thrive in Britain, leading the way where Edith Remington, Marian Adams, Emmy Bridgewater, Kay Sage and Stella Sneed, who each incorporated themes of nature and the significance of the landscape, perhaps to offer an imagined existence away from suppressing patriarchal constructs. In their paintings, the Surrealist women are intrigued by the slippage between different gender roles and the act of transformation. They painted themselves and each other in myriad guises, as well as using the medium to open up their psyches and inner worlds. With the outbreak of war in 1939, many of the women artists based in Paris went on to exhibit their work worldwide and continued their practices in Europe, Mexico, and the Americas. 
populating her paintings with commanding figures of women in the form of sphinxes, eroticized self-portraits with billowing hair, and emasculated males reminiscent of Velasquez's The Rokeby Venus, 1647-51, Leonor Fini incorporated the most fantastical, otherworldly realities in her tightly rendered surfaces. Born in Buenos Aires, but raised in Trieste in northern Italy, after her young mother escaped her domineering Catholic father, Fini, a self-taught artist, adopted a painting style reminiscent of the Renaissance works she had witnessed in her youth. Her childhood had been full of trauma, and she and her mother were often on the run from her father, who refused to grant his wife a divorce and was determined to take his daughter back to Argentina. To foil her father's kidnapping attempts, Fini dressed as a boy for many years, and during her adolescence, Feeney suffered from rheumatic conjunctivitis that required her to have both eyes bandaged for months, which allegedly allowed her to look deep into her imagination. Arriving in Paris in the early 1930s, Feeney was adored by many. Chadwick has described her as tall and striking, with jet black hair and piercing eyes. She possessed a strange combination of feline grace and Amazonian power. Rejecting Breton's manifesto and his misogynistic views, it was through paint that she depicted herself and her friends, Mary Oppenheim and Leonora Carrington, as commanding women in charge of their own lives. Although at first glance her self-portrait with Scorpion, 1938, feels traditional, look closer and it exudes sexuality, seductiveness and dominance. Portraying herself in a proto-punk, proto-feminist ripped dress, she holds a silver glove, a typical erotic symbol, hiding a scorpion, alluding to sexual passion or power within. She turns three quarters towards us, head on, with self-assurance and determination. Influenced by the onset of the Spanish Civil War and the likelihood of another world war, Feeney also turned to representations of the Sphinx as a warrior symbol of knowledge and beauty, with the power to overcome this distressing time. The exploration of gender roles was a hugely important theme in Feeney's work, as it was for the Surrealists as a whole. As if we were stumbling on a private scene, her self-portrait with Nico Papatakis, Lacove, 1941, made at a time when she had fled Paris for Rome, presents a woman governing a highly idealised, eroticised, effeminate male body, with his hands coquettishly removing the bedsheets. Continuing to paint until her death in 1996, she created the costumes for Federico Fellini's film Eight and a Half in 1963 and made ball gowns for the likes of Brigitte Bardot in the 1950s. She applied her surrealist philosophy in every art form she tackled. Similarly interested in magic, alchemy and experimenting with gender roles, Leonora Carrington fled her debutant lifestyle in Lancashire to join the surrealists in Paris. Like so many of the women of the movement, who were from families steeped in tradition, Carrington was attracted to surrealism for its anti-establishment values. However, after entering into a relationship with the much older artist Max Ernst, it was through painting that she portrayed her emotional and artistic oppression. In Portrait of Max Ernst, 1939, she presents him as almost feline, dressed in a billowing crimson fur coat and looming ominously in an icy landscape. 
a white horse, representing Carrington, appears twice. One stands behind him, frozen in the distance, whereas another, in a similar style to Lee Miller's photograph of Tanya Ram under a bell jar, is trapped in a green glass lantern, as if symbolising his inescapable, dominating control. When the war broke out, and with no family to turn to, Carrington fled to Mexico City, a place that was appealing to surrealist artists because of its Aztec and Mayan history. It was here that she developed further as an artist and remained for the rest of her life with close friends and fellow artists Remedios Varo, a Spanish painter known for her meticulously rendered alchemic and scientific paintings, photographer Katy Horner, who would capture surrealist black and white images of Carrington, and poet and painter Alice Rajon, who referenced Mexican culture, myths, and landscape in her mystical paintings. Working well into the 2000s, Carrington often harked back to the constraints of her British childhood through work such as Green Tea, 1942, which showed a mummified figure in a luscious verdant English landscape, and Grandma Moorhead's Aromatic Kitchen, 1975, which fused Mexican food with the memory of her grandmother's English stove. The Mexican surrealist art scene was already well-established, thanks to the legendary painter Frida Kahlo and the artists participating in the cultural renaissance of post-revolution Mexico City. Another notable artist of the period was the self-taught Maria Izquierdo, who produced vivid, icon-like portraits of women in traditional Mexican dress. A child of the revolution, she would lie about being born in 1910 as opposed to 1907, to coincide with Mexico's revolution, Frida Kahlo was passionately political and initially dreamed of becoming a doctor. However, following an early life full of trauma, she contracted polio at the age of six, which left her with a withered leg, and at 17 suffered horrific injuries when she was involved in a bus crash. Her dreams started to change. She was encouraged to paint when she was recovering from the accident and bedbound. She painted what she had access to, her friends, family, sisters, and also her greatest subject, herself. Carlo embraced and scrutinised her own image in a way that had never been done before. Her output remains one of the most fascinating explorations of the self in art history. Vulnerable, crippled, heartbroken, strong, assertive, full of life and in love, Carlo portrayed herself going through every emotion and in every guise. She was intrigued by the body's ability to transform itself, a subject that also came up in the work of Carrington, and used painting to explore her struggles with pregnancy and miscarriage in images that are brutal yet truthful. In Henry Ford Hospital, 1932, we witness a harrowing surrealist self-portrait of her experience of abortion and of being separated from her fetus. Lying on an oversized hospital bed, her belly swollen and her spindled backside in a pool of blood, tears pour from her eyes as she clutches a string-like umbilical cord that links her to her fetus, as well as to a snail, a pelvic bone, a machine, a flower and a cast. In this work, she presents the disturbing reality of what it was like to be a woman, affirming the vulnerability of the self in ways that remain radical today. Not only was North America free of the misogynistic demands of the male surrealists, but it was a place that was home to an inherently expansive surrealist landscape. 
flat prairies and desert plains, motifs that would appear in the paintings of Dorothea Tanning and Chicago-based Gertrude Abercrombie. Captivated by what she described as surrealism's limitless expanse of possibility, the Illinois-born Tanning spent her childhood where, she said, nothing happens but the wallpaper, escaping into the worlds of Gothic novels and other literature. She first encountered surrealism at the fantastic art Dada Surrealism Exhibition in 1936 at the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, formerly known as The Modern, in New York City, and three years later travelled to Paris in an attempt to meet the artists whose work she had seen. On getting there, she discovered that many had fled the city at the outbreak of war. She would soon do the same and return home. In time, numerous European artists crossed the Atlantic, mainly settling in New York City, which became home to a haven of cultural refugees. Determined to formulate her own surrealist imagery and style, Tanning marked her birth into the movement with a self-portrait. In Birthday, 1942, she stands bare-breasted, wearing a fantastical costume, a glittering mauve and silver Elizabethan-like blouse, and a skirt filled with tiny formless bodies, in front of a suite of open doors that extend as far back as we can see. Perhaps a route to our most secret desires, the symbolism of the doors remains unknown. Famously evasive about her intentions, Tanning once said, don't ask me to explain my paintings. Drawn to mystery and the power of dreams, upon moving to Sedona, Arizona, in her words, the landscape of wild fantasy, Tanning painted Ina Klein and Nacht Music in 1943. A disturbing, surrealist nightmare picturing what looks like two young girls ominously standing in an empty hotel corridor, their hair erupting like flames as they are chased by or chasing a giant sunflower. Experimenting further, Tanning later transformed elements from her paintings into soft sculptures in her installation Hotel du Pavot Chambre 202, 1970-73, featuring stuffed, awkwardly shaped figures climbing on walls. As viewers of her work, we are unsure as to what constitutes life, and through her art, Tanning makes us see the world differently. Working independently from the surrealist group, Gertrude Abercrombie spent most of her life immersed in the Chicago jazz scene. With a penchant for cats, crescent and full moons, sinister desert-like landscapes that feature as paintings in bleak, cold interiors, as seen in Countess Nerona, number three, 1951, stairs that lead to nowhere, or a series of rhythmically coloured doors, as seen in Doors 4, five and a half, 1957. Abercrombie forged a unique style and presented her sometimes postage stamp-sized paintings in flamboyant frames. Through images of transformation, oppression and liberation, surrealism as a movement and as a philosophy, which is still in development today, allowed women artists the possibility of challenging the establishment and fashioning their ideas, artworks and objects into something entirely new. Whereas some of these women are now more famous than others, in recent years, exhibitions on surrealism that feature only women artists have toured the world, in addition to major retrospectives by Tanning, Marr, Agar and Miller. Miller.